for me, it was also important to think politically about this, which is like, what can debility galvanize if we all understand ourselves in some relation to debility? And it's not contingent upon a self-other binarization of disabled, non-disabled. There's no pure debility and there's no pure capacity, right? That we are, as bodies, kind of moving in and out of these realms all the time. the death panel. Patrons, thank you so much for your support of the show. We could not do any of this without you. If you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore or request it at your local library, and follow us at death panel underscore. So today, Jules and I have a really special interview for you. Jusbir Poir, author of the truly pathbreaking books, Terrorist Assemblages, Homo Nationalism in Queer Times, originally published in 2007, and The Right to Maim, Debility, Capacity, Disability, also published by Duke University Press in 2017. Now, I think people often overuse the word pathbreaking, like a kind of buzzword when you want to say that something is really important, but Jasbir's work is truly pathbreaking. This is not an exaggeration, and I'm not just saying this to be nice. I am very hardcore serious about this. And I'm honored to have her here today to join us in discussion so that the three of us can revisit her book, The Right to Maim. Jasbir, welcome to the Death Panel. It's so wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much. It's absolutely wonderful to be here with both of you. And I really thank you for this opportunity to talk with you. Now, The Right to Maim is an incredibly thoughtful, complex, and nuanced examination, which if I had to really distill it down to one sentence, maybe I would say that this book is about ideas about bodies and the way ideas about bodies are deployed by, among other things, U.S. imperialism. Though it's often talked about as uh, this is a book about Palestine or this is a book about queerness and disability or homo nationalism and able nationalism. And I think you're quite clear throughout the book that this is first and foremost about in many ways American empire and the violent global effects of settler colonialism. Um, it's also a book, I think, about how some of the exceptionalist ideas about health, debility, disability, capacity, and what all those mean to a so-called nation and how those justify but can also obscure the ongoingness of imperialism and the ongoingness of settler colonialism and especially the role that the U.S. has not just as a space of sort of neoliberal civil rights aspiration, um, but as a global force which is productive of debility. And in the book, you have said that this sort of often manifests as a misreading of structure as event or the idea that, as Lauren Boland has put it, we sort of misread the endemic as epidemic. We use language of crisis and exceptionalism to frame things either as an aberration, a deviation from the norm. Um, and your work really challenges readers to reckon with that kind of habit. And it's one of the main reasons, actually, that Artie and I chose to situate health communism within the context of COVID in the introduction, but we categorically and intentionally 
locate our analysis beyond COVID quite forcefully, because I think what your work really taught us is that materially speaking, you know, one of our greatest challenges with regard to COVID is to understand it in the context of social murder, which we have talked about on this show in the past with Nate Holdren as a kind of necessary precondition for capitalism that is built or baked in, you know, whatever metaphor you prefer to use, that's a kind of prerequisite. But your work is really important because it reminds us that death, while positioned as a kind of ultimate consequence and final outcome, is also a kind of exceptionalized endpoint, which really hides the kind of crucially productive role of maiming to capital and states. And so I'm really excited to talk to you about this book. And I know it's been five years since it came out um, and more since you wrote it. And that it's also a sort of continuation of the project in your first book as well. So I hope today we can sort of revisit it, think about it, think about what it's made you think about since. And I was hoping that before we get into some of this nuance of debility, capacity, disability, biopolitics, homo-nationalism, able-nationalism, for context, can you start us off by talking a little bit about how your work led to the arguments in Right to Maim and where you sort of situate your own analysis or, you know, what you wake up in the morning mad about, what you write through and against? <laughs> um, well, I wake up in the morning mad about many things, but um, first of all, just <laughs> thank you so, so much for that very um, generous introduction to the book and framing of the book. And, and I really appreciate the care with which you, you know, distinguish it from being a book just about Palestine, which I think has been a way in which people have dismissed or decided not to read it since, you know, uh, teaching and reading about Palestine can get difficult in the U.S. Academy. You know, you've really foregrounded what I think is really important, which is it's an American studies book. It is engaged with a transnational American studies kind of methodology and frame. And it also, I think of it as a piece of um, kind of accountability to U.S. settler colonialism, um, you know, and for myself as a as a settler in the United States, and also as a kind of solidarity project as well as someone who sees the importance of scholarship as a contribution to solidarity movement organizing. Um, so these these things that you've mentioned kind of all all matter to me about the book. Um, I. You know, I'm an interdisciplinary scholar. I'm from, um, I have an ethnic studies background and gender studies background and um, have done most of my work in teaching and transnational feminist kinds of framings. And this this project really came out of the work in terrorist assemblages, um, in particular through an absence in terrorist assemblages, I would say, that was addressed in the years following its publication um, was addressed by critical disability studies scholars, um, in particular, David Mitchell, um, Robert McRuer, Sharon Schneider, who were writing about able nationalism um, and started seeing the connections between homo nationalism and able nationalism and um, kind of noting the ways in which I hadn't paid att enough attention to, if at all, you know, what homo nationalism demands, which is, of course, white racial privilege, class mobility, and uh, cisgender identity, access to certain kinds of resources, reproduction of a kind of normative familial structure, but also, you know, able-bodiedness. And so that was an important recognition for me in the years following the publication of Terrorist Assemblages and a really important conversation that I was having with 
folks in critical disability studies. And I, it was important for me, given the wide audience that Terrace Assemblage is quite unexpectedly garnered, it was really important for me to kind of follow the lead of the interlocutors at that time um, to understand where the book was resonating and where it, it fell short or where it could be further extended. So that I think that was one of the formative you know, conversations that drove the right to maim. Um, but the other also was, there was two other things. One one was conceptual, uh, that I was kind of working through the kind of debates between biopolitics and necropolitics and really starting to, and even in terrorist assemblages, starting to understand biopolitics as uh, what I call a debility capacity machine. And what I mean by that is that this kind of biopolitics and this bio-necro collaboration, uh, which is how I describe it in terrorist assemblages, not only, you know, measures uh, bodily states um, and kind of measures corporeality, um, but also modulates bodily capacity and debility and prescribes bodily capacity and debility by creating theories of um, not not the distinction between abnormal and normal, but like uh, a kind of continuum of normativities, right, that then start creating a kind of constellation around, well, how close to the statistical norm are you? Or how, you know, how much, how much aspirational uh, capacity do you have to arrive at a kind of biopolitical, the kind of center of, of the interest of a, a kind of biopolitics? So, so biopolitics really started emerging to me as something that was not only measuring and tracking fertility, death rates, you know, illness, all sorts of other parameters of bodily life, but was also prescribing their meanings and modulating their, their social positioning and their standing and also modulating bodies more generally. Um, and then the, the, I, I would say the last thing that really drove this book was 2014 with the Black Lives Matter protests and the Gaza to Ferguson or Ferguson to Gaza organizing that was going on and also Operation Protective um, Edge that was happening in Gaza um, in 2014. Um, those political events really started for me crystallizing uh, what was at stake and thinking about biopolitics, not just through the framings of life and death, but through kind of targeted impairment and what I eventually came to call the right to name. I really appreciate the the way that in the book in particular, when we talk about biopolitics, often it's kind of talked about as like a theory of how in some ways like political relations are dictated through different ways of like administering or regulating uh, the life of of populations. And a lot of people engage with sort of a couple of these different frames that are under the umbrella of biopolitics, looking at ways that, you know, life is sustained, um, life is multiplied, life is removed. But I feel like one of the things that you're really engaging with is this kind of idea of biopolitics as a regime of putting life in order and this kind of statistical management of the population and really trying to question 
what these frames are toward. Um, I don't know if that's a sort of misreading of your engagement with biopolitics, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about sort of how you see biopolitics uh, as an idea and sort of what your specific intervention or like development of that idea uh, is. Um, well, I, th I think I started feeling the kinds of limitations around uh, the Foucauldian frame, but not only and 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 you know that those framings from Foucault have been rightly criticized by any number of people around the lack of addressing colonial rule, European colonial rule, in the mm -hmm. context of the, the context that Foucault was writing about. Um, but I also was curious about this kind of life-death binary that, um, as I think is, as you already mentioned, B, that like talks about death as a kind of ultimate endpoint or the way I think about it, death is a kind of ultimate assault on life. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just not, I think that that just didn't sit necessarily uh, right with, with me um, for a number of reasons. But I also, you know, in 2014, uh, when Israel was bombing Gaza, the discourse on the number of deaths uh, was something that galvanized people. Uh, there were huge protests during that mm -hmm. summer all around the world. And, you know, the death toll was announced every day. I was watching this unfold every day for 52 days. And at this point um, in 2014, I was already heavily immersed in these conversations and in, you know, for myself, kind of taking up um, a position as a scholar in critical disability studies. And I was like, there's something missing about this conversation. And I, you know, when I started tracking beyond um, the death toll numbers, realized that thousands of people were being disabled every day. Mm -hmm. um, during these during these um, numerous days and not reported on at all. And so I started really thinking about the utility of that, um, the political utility of not reporting on the disabilities, um, the economic utility of that, the ideological, you know, the kind of cultural and ideological capital that comes from not reporting on that. And I think to, you know, to take it outside of, of that, of the context of the book, we continue to see, and we're able to, con you know, continue to to try to understand what are the political, economic, and ideological benefits of not talking about um, disablement as an active state practice. For example, uh, with the Evaldi shootings, we don't hear about the almost two dozen children that were disabled in the shootings that killed you know, almost as many uh, people. And so there's, you know, I, st I really started wondering, like, well, who's benefiting from not talking about this? And also what kinds of discourses continue to minimize the impact of disablement in favor of this life-death binary that continues to produce death as something that we should mobilize around, while disablement is not necessarily something that would, you know, galvanize people to come out to the streets, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, so part of what, you know, part of the impetus around the book was like, well, there has to be, or I wanted to see, could there be a politics, um, an anti-imperial politics that galvanized, was galvanizing, not just around the kind of, you know, mass killings, but also around mass disablement as well. And that impetus 
um, seemed to go against the grain of disability studies at that time, and for sure, uh, disability rights organizing, but also just more generally, I just didn't see that kind of attention um, in kind of the U.S. context of organizing being paid to the consequences of kind of constantly defaulting to death as the primary form of collateral damage. Yeah. And I I think that's super important to consider in the context of COVID as well and the discussion Mm -hmm. around sort of how we're perceiving what it is going to be that's going to be what, quote unquote, makes people in power care about COVID um, for for many, uh, many months early on in the pandemic, um, there was a big debate over whether or not kids got COVID or had bad outcomes from COVID. And that's something we covered with exhausting specificity on this show. And as the evidence began to pile up that, yes, in fact, like kids could get COVID and that it did terrible things to children's bodies and could produce symptoms for many months afterward, giving many more children an experience of sort of ME-CFS-like symptoms um, in a a sort of extreme concentration of time that we haven't seen um, in many years, particularly in the United States, this kind of idea emerged of like, well, there's a threshold of of dead kids that we'll reach when people will care, right? And Mm -hmm. I think it's often held up as, as death is almost like this ultimate proof of wrongdoing by state or political apparatuses or by structural theories. Um, and that ultimately sort of this example of, you know, what's happening to children beyond the children who die in school shootings, who we never hear about, which is something I had not thought of before. But as soon as you said it, I was like, oh, fuck. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's it's tremendously damning that you never, ever hear discussion of the kind of collateral impacts beyond the loss of life from things like gun violence in the United States. Yeah, it's interesting you just mentioned that because there was an article, a recent article in the Washington Post that's actually finally kind of looking um, just on a base level, on like statistically speaking, that far more people are disabled by mm-hmm. police brutality and police violence than are killed. Um, so there's also something important here about the spectacleization of killing um, mm-hmm. and how maiming and disablement, and it, first of all, injury, maiming, disability, disablement, they're hard to measure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and death is mm-hmm. constructed as an extremely finite event, even though, and another limitation to the Foucauldian frame is that, of course, life does not begin in the same way or the same place or the same moment for everybody Life does not end in the same way, in the same moment, in the same forms for everybody. So we have all sorts of other cosmologies that we can think about um, in terms of, you know, when does life actually transition into something called death or what does death actually mean that might actually be contiguous with life or a version of life, right? Um, So that's not even accounted for um, at all. Well, I I, I think one of the things that you know, so galvanizing about the way you're sort of drawing our attention from the get-go in the book is is kind of asking us to see how we become so affixed to what we think is exceptional and that that can actually, you know, kind of work in contradictory or contrary ways. So disability imagined as exceptional, if it's a sort of um, tragedy narrative where the intent was to kill, but 
it failed. And so death didn't happen. And that's what makes, you know, disability, this thing we have to be affixed to, or by, you know, in a contrary sense, disability as a kind of exception that can lead to a human rights formation to make certain demands on the state for repair. And that in both cases, that exceptionalizing move is about subtracting, maybe even empirically, like demographically, materially, almost mm. the majority of what's going on. And so there's yes. something yes. missing, mm-hmm. right? And and I wonder if maybe, you know, one way to get into to talking about this disability and disability versus disability or debility or this kind of nexus that you work with in the book is to really sort of let us tell us a little bit more about kind of, yeah, how how, how has disability kind of been approached or theorized or how was it being theorized at the time you were writing that kind of, you know, reinforced that exceptionalism uh, and, and kind of, in some ways, I think about it as like almost drawing our attention to a smaller and smaller phenomenon um, and kind of like reinforcing, you know, this category of disability um, in a way that, you know, sort of by proxy is asking us not to think about um, what it's connected to or what it might rely on, right? That is sort of distinguished or differentiated from it. So yeah, what were some of those sort of, you know, dominant ways at the time or dominant ways often still, whether theoretical, political, um, that of, of thinking through or understanding disability that you felt you really wanted to, to dig into and complicate? Um, yeah, that's a that's a great um, way of kind of laying out the stakes here. And to respond to the earlier part of your comment, just this idea that death didn't happen um, mm. becomes a kind of humane approach to violence, right? right. Um, and and again, you're supposed to be grateful that death didn't happen. Um, and we can talk about this if you want later, but this is connected to kind of newer work that I'm doing on non-lethal weaponry and crowd control mm. Uh, mm. weaponry and just the way in which our discourses are humanitarian and our human rights discourses and our discourses about what is humane are all embedded in this, pro- are, are all kind of driving this problem, I would say, because it's always about a kind of gratitude towards not being killed um, mm. and that, you know, maiming is this kind of humane alternative um, the killing. And then the other part of that problem is, you know, where, where is disability in all of this? Well, it's either, you know, in this kind of life death binary, the empowerment discourse is like, here's a, a life worth living. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in some formulations of kind of necropolitics, it's like, you know, de- debilitation and disability, disablement, you know, are kind of uh, on the way to death. They're part of a death mm. world. This is obviously a reference to Ashila Membe's work. And, you know, and then again, this kind of alibi for uh, a kind of humanism, like death didn't happen. Um, mm. And so all, all of these things are kind of keeping our attention from actually writing histories from the vantage of, of injury and maiming and disablement, I think. Um, if we were talking about kind of writing histories of violence, if we if we started from, you know, not the question of killing always being the ultimate symbol and sign and evidence of violence, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think at that time, and of course, there, you know, there has been ongoingly um, a lot of acknowledgement that the binary of disability and uh, or disabled and non-disabled 
is a very murky one. It's constantly being undermined. It's not necessarily lived out as a binary for so many of us um, who are kind of moving back and forth in between these categories, um, that these categories also are not fixed states of our bodies. Um, They're not attributes necessarily. They change across geopolitical space, across state regimes of designation, you know, who's disabled, who's not disabled, um, across institutional processes, um, you know, in terms of all sorts of things from getting accommodations to forms of evaluation. They're modulated across historical time. So, um, and human rights regimes as well. And so a lot of these apparatuses that claim to be you know, recognizing disability are actually producing it as a category, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's the biggest problem, right, is that there's been, even even as there's been attention to complicating this binary, I think there's been a politics that's arisen out of the binarization uh, around the category. And so that politics is then a kind of reattachment to the binary itself and to um, disability as an identity. And then from that arises a lot of discussion about, well, who's really disabled? Who's not really disabled? Mm-hmm. What, is a dis- what is a disability? What's not a disability? And a lot of these discussions focus on both identity and the body um, in ways that stabilize, I think, both, right? And so instead of, you know, what is disability, I think the book is really invested in, you know, what does these, what do these categorizations of disability do? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, what is their function? What is their function as part of a taxonomy? What is the function of this categorization um, in relation to uh, biopolitics? And, you know, for me, I was really also reading a lot from what is now called uh, Southern Disability Studies. And in particular, you know, I center Helen Mikosha's work in, in the book and continue to center her 2011 article uh, called Decolonizing Disability, because I think that even though that piece is widely cited, it's kind of like Marta Russell as well, like yes. Marta Russell's mm-hmm. work, mm-hmm. widely, widely cited. But when you look at what she's calling for, what Mikosha's calling for, so little of that has actually been followed through upon, you know, and I wanted to take seriously that this distinction that is often made between disability and impairment, um, say, in North American context, is not something that makes a lot of sense to a lot of people working in these fields in Southern Disability Studies and in the Global South. Um, So that was another reason why I was interested in what does the cat, what do, what do these categorizations um, and these modalities of categorizing disability, what do they do? Um, What's their imperial function? Uh, What's their function in in economic and capitalist terms? What's their productive function um, in terms of state violence? And the other, the other thing I'll say is that there's, there's also been uh, in academic discourse, but I also think in organizing spaces, this kind of distinction between disability as a political identity versus disability as a descriptive, um, yeah. you know, modality. And I also think this is a 
a problematic distinction. You know, when I, um, in terms of the work that I've done in, in Palestine, you know, largely have found that disability does operate as a descriptive identity, but that by no means indicates that people don't have a political relationship to disability. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not a political identity of disability. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I really saw that some of these efforts to kind of complicate uh, this binary uh, were actually then being undermined or that binary was being resutured or bolstered mm -hmm. again uh, by some of these other kind of backdoor, you know, analyses and contributions. I really love the way you put that because it, yeah. it does feel like a reanimation of something that is being critiqued often. And sometimes this even extends to discussions um, amongst disabled people as to what the valid uh, disability-informed critique of a particular mm -hmm. event or political perspective even is. Um, and mm -hmm. this is, mm -hmm. I think, one of the things that talking to colleagues in the Global South who work with disability and think about disability, that's one of the things that's most alienating to them um, when they're working is to think about the amount of people that are particularly working in the United States who are so ready to sort of declare like what is valid disability critique and what is invalid disability critique without any realization of what is influencing and shaping the parameters that they're setting up for what qualifies or disqualifies something as being quote unquote good disability crit or bad, mm -hmm. you know, quote unquote unproductive rhetoric or so to speak or difficult rhetoric. And I think this is something that that we see really often kind of mobilized partially in in a mode to put the United States sort of up on a pedestal in some capacity. I think there's a lot of attachment to some of the legislative victories that we've had in the United States that mm -hmm. as it's been taken mm -hmm. up, and this is why I think your work is so important because you're really looking at both like how these things exist, but also how they're sort of like taken up by like international frameworks of charity in some capacity or, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, the way that like, for example, like the WHO talks about disability is incredibly influenced by the Americans with Disabilities Act, the British and American social model of disability movement. And then that's going to shape and influence how the rest of the world is sort of given certain types of funding to study disability or certain types of like global um, data projects are initiated or not initiated or targeted or sort of what these definitions become. And what it begins to do is also really hide the way that the U.S. empire is a massively productive force in terms of, quote unquote, making new disabled people through um, its, you know, ongoing sort of imperialist engagement with the the rest of the world. And this is something that I think not a lot of folks in the United States um, have really like reckoned with so much. And, and I, you know, I think part of that comes from an attachment to kind of like the idea of trying to work with some of those civil rights protections that we have earned and trying to sort of uh, find ways to bridge this gap. And what it essentially becomes is, and, and Ruthie uh, Gilmore put this so well uh, when I interviewed her, is she said she called this kind of thing, she was talking about something else, but it, it totally applies here. 
capitalism saving capitalism from capitalism, where you think about the ADA, what mm-hmm. actually is going on in the Americans with Disabilities right. Act is this is a right. enfranchisement of a population that was excluded from an idea called the dignity of risk into the dignity of risk, which is fundamentally a sort of idea not about who should be supported within society, but about how someone makes themselves worthwhile and valuable to society. And this was a fundamentally conservative bill. It was pushed by conservatives. It was passed during the Bush administration, the first Bush administration. And I think it's no coincidence that in a way, a lot of these liberal disability rights frames not only kind of collapse the Southern perspective on disablement, but they also like really hide in a lot of ways the role the United States and the war on terror has had in the global sort of disabled community. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, when you're talking about wanting to move into this, these categorizations of seeing, uh, being seen as worthwhile and being fundamental, like through the ADA, it's also about legibility as well, right? Um, which is, you know, becomes the most um, important parameter in a lot of ways with these kind of global NGO projects. So for example, you know, in the, and and the work that I've done in Palestine in the refugee camps around um, disability is, is extremely limited. So I say this, um, you know, provisionally, um, but the funding networks that are varied, uh, they come from, they've came from Oslo in the past, they've come from the UN, um, from UNRWA, they come from, you know, other independent NGO organizations, but they're all involved in standardizing this language of disability. And of course, you know, people trying to access this funding are, you know, have developed all sorts of strategies for, you know, mimicking or manipulating or uh, deploying a kind of strategic relation to these categories, this kind of lexicon, the empowerment lexicon, um, that are kind of prevalent and and rife in these in these networks. But just to speak to very and very concretely to what you're talking about, um, there's researchers Rita Giacomin in particular in the West Bank. I was just thinking um, of Rita. Yeah, <laughs> well, of course. Who and and who you should totally interview. By the way, I um she you know she, I can I can help you figure out how and where. She's kind of hard to oh my god to I would get, love that you know to get <laughs> yeah. I mean I I would actually love to be on an interview with her as well. I've I've obviously spoken with her many times, but um you know her her team and her work at the Public um, Institute of Health at Bear State University, they they are now understanding the effects of many decades of overdiagnosis of PTSD and other kinds of mental disabilities mm-hmm. that worked in the service of not having to deal with the complexity of the occupation and kind of subject formation and subjectivity and resistance and health and all of these things. And so it becomes easier to produce a binary uh, between, you know, um, the the disabled, non-disabled binary than it does to actually address what kinds of, uh, what what kinds of social suffering are happening because of the occupation, right? Um, So, so that's one really, like, real concrete um, example of the way in which U.S. imperialism, through this mechanism, of aid and care and humanitarian circuits winds up actually 
reproducing a kind of really problematic um, binary in order to uh, obfuscate an accountability to the occupation as a political problem and as a political solidarity, you know, a, a, a kind of um, need for political solidarity. And she's written a, a great deal about some of her interactions with these NGOs. But the other thing I wanted to say is that disability itself as a category, um, if we're looking at the North American and, and Euro, Euro-American context, you know, is often it's often said that disability, you know, needs to be part of a kind of intersectional, um, ana- any kind of intersectional analysis, right? We have to uh, take into account disability. But disability itself is already anchored and as a category mm-hmm. in whiteness, in imperial formations, in um, official state recognitions and citizenship. Absolutely. Yeah. If we go to Fanon, you know, we we're looking at medicalization of colonialism. You know, we're already um, so the, the the category of disability itself, it, it kind of works three ways. It's like it needs to be part of an intersectional analysis, it needs to be intersectionalized itself. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but then also as as its own genealogical formation is so wedded already to the very forms of violence that it portends to be addressing. Um, and so these are some of the things I was trying to get at uh, in the book, that this is a you know, there, there's a kind of political and an epistemological problem going on here. There, there's a wonderful line um, in the preface. I mean, I wish, I wish you all could see my my notes from the preface because I like I created started creating <laughs> this really elaborate starring system to like be like, okay, well, this this line is so important. And then and like some some lines have like seven stars beside them because I'm just adding more and more stars. So, but but just to pull Mine's one, just you know, full uh, post its and then bookmarks and then page fold over corner dog eared corners, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, a beautiful beautiful assemblage. I mean, there's this there's a one one of the lines you know you write just disability is everywhere and yet for all sorts of important reasons not claimed as such and the sort of way in which you know then disability you know, the idea that claiming the things that have not been claimed as disabilities as disabilities would somehow be the solution is exactly, you know, symptomatic of, of the problem that you're trying to, mm-hmm. to, to, to help us understand. But, you know, I think one thing that's so important is that, you know, the, this critique of the disabled, non-disabled binary isn't meant to be replaced by, uh, you know, even a binary or any other prescribed relationship between disability and debility. Um, and I'm wondering if we can sort of move towards talking about, you know, what debility does um, in relation to disability, but just sort of digging into debility or debilitation. Um, because, you know, we've been talking a lot about how disability gets framed as an exception, as a discrete event, that something to be standardized, to be taxonomized, to really kind of be sort of made legible, even though it can take many different, you know, definitions and different contexts, nevertheless, it's sort of point is to be turned into something really kind of tangible. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas mm-hmm. debility takes us towards, you know, the endemic, the things that are so structural um, to 
to the conditions of life for entire populations that they would never become so discrete in the first place. Um, but, but part of what you're bringing us towards understanding is that relationship between what we think is the exception, what we think is spectacular, and this endemic kind of everyday, um, this sort of massified logic um, and forms of violence that operate, you know, on different, at different speeds or at different scales, right, and, and kind of, you know, show kind of, I guess, you know, network or connect a bunch of things um, that we wouldn't, that we wouldn't really pay attention to if we were sort of so dialed into the exceptional category of disability. Um, and, and so you, you sort of set up this really, I think, important um, I think especially for, you know, for readers reading from the Global North, this really important kind of question to understand, you know, not just why, you know, why is the degree and scale of injury and maiming and violence, um, you know, throughout the Global South or throughout the throughout the, the globe, frankly, when it comes to U.S. imperialism, you know, not the problem is not like, oh, why isn't all of that understood as disability as if to understand it that way would be, you know, the solution, but actually, you know, understanding it as debility takes us to, to sort of consider, um, you know, a different set of operations or calculations and a kind of centrality or productivity too to all of this violence. Again, that it's not just sort of senseless or, you know, not derivative, right? Like collateral damage is a really interesting concept when it has an end unto itself. So could, yeah, could you tell us like a little bit about how sort of you you work with debility um, to to kind of open up um, all of those sort of different questions that kind of stand in contrast to disability um, before we even then can kind of ask you to tell us about how to, to understand the relationships between disability and debility. But for you, what does debility, um, yeah, sort of help us apprehend um, a little differently than disability? Well, I think, um, like, first of all, I wanted just to flag Julie Livingston's work, because that's where yeah. I first started um, thinking about the term debility. And it's from her, I think it's a 2005 book called uh, Debility and the Moral Imagination in Botswana. And Julie, you know, she 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 deploys debility a little bit differently than how I eventually start thinking about it. Um, but she's talking about a broader sphere that includes um, disability in it, which I ultimately try to refine a little bit. But one of the most important things that um, she writes is that she's interested in bodily infirmities that are not regarded as disability because she writes they are expected impairments. Mm. And understood as as such, they are understood as normal or what we're ca we're calling endemic, right? So there's mm. nothing exceptional about these expected impairments. And she's looking at minors um, who are returning from the mines, usually amputated, right? In that in that context. So, you know, here's a a kind of literature from you know her work and and related works from the from global south uh, literatures. That's actually, you know, not following the kind of Euro-American uh, models of disability and disability studies or the UN models or um, the NGO models or whatever. She's actually like, actually, these are, this is a kind of lived reality here, which is this idea of disability is not operative. Um, as a form of sociality, right? Mm -hmm. um, because these are expected impairments. So what kind yes. of sociality is that, right? Yeah. Um, 
where, you know, um, where impairments are not exceptionalized and people have communities have all sorts of modes for for accommodating those impairments, for understanding how we live with them, you know, so there's a whole other kind of sociality that's organized around these, you know, quote unquote, expected impairments. So that seems really important. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems really important to me. And um, just from a, you know, from from the context of like ethnographic work and work from the global south, the what happened, what happens for me around, you know, debility is a, a couple things, Jules. You mentioned uh, uh, many of these things already, um, but I, you know, and and for me, debility is kind of intersecting with Lauren Berlant's notion of slow death. Um, but one of the things that I wanted to do with that idea of slow death, it, you know, because you've got the temporal aspect in here that's so important. Um, it's the ongoingness, and I think slow death also. Uh, first of all, I wanted to infuse the understanding of slow death or the conceptualization of slow death with a kind of geopolitics and biopolitics that understands not only the uneven effects of sl- or the uneven distribution of slow death, say, across classed populations, but I was really thinking about it geopolitically, right? And in terms of empire and imperialism, um, you know, what is the imperial machine in terms of creating uh, ongoing, long-standing um, debilitation, De- you know, debilitation that's not organized around a spectacular event um, that destabilizes the notion of an event or the notion of a disabling event or disablement, um, which, I again, I think that the language of disablement and disabling um, often still concretizes an event, right? Um, for yeah. me, debility really looks at you know, even when there is this kind of disabling event, there's an awareness through debility of the sociopolitical and geopolitical and historical conditions that give rise to that event, right? Um, and then also the conditions that in, inform the aftermath of, of that event, should there even be an event, right? Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, to kind of foreground the biopolitics of the statistical likelihood of being what I call avail- made available for injury, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, whereas Julie's defining disability within within a broader frame of debility, I'm really thinking about how they need each other uh, in a particular way. They're conceptually kind of codependent on each other because there's they have important functions um, as a relation. And I think debility is not an identification, it's a process. But in particular, disability is a kind of exceptionalization of injury, of bodily condition of illness within the context of kind of widespread disenfranchisement or what I wind up calling um, debilitation, right? So this obfuscation of debility, you know, is, is one one thing that the category disability does is erase structural debilitation or yeah. structural, de- yeah. like deep-seated disenfranchisement that I'm now calling debilitation. And that's a really important way of understanding what disability um, as a taxonomy does, is that it then moves our attention away from the non-spectacular, the non-consolidatable, uh, the non-legible 
And so we lose the thread of what is potentially a very galvanizing kind of conceptual and lived reality of debility um, that goes beyond a kind of identity. So that for me, it was also important to think politically about this. And, mm. I, you know, wh which is like, what can debility galvanize if we all understand ourselves in some relation to debility? And it's not contingent upon a self-other binarization of disabled, non-disabled, which we may well move in and out of or or have as an identity, but we're also connected to others who understand themselves in some relation to debility, then where's the kind of political mobilization potential in that? And to go to just the context of teaching, I initially, after a kind of working with, you know, some of this literature that was talking about debility, I also just saw the relevance of this in my own classrooms where hmm. um, the disabled body, the disabled student was always imagined to be either visibly present in the classroom, right? Because of mm -hmm. the way that disability is so cohered around the visible disability and visuality. Um, and if that wasn't the case, then that disabled student was always understood as outside of the classroom. Um, and in the meantime, I had so many students going through accommodations, um, you know, on various medica medicalization, you know, dealing with medicalization and kind of dealing with pharmaceuticals and applying for accommodations and all, all of them embedded in these processes of administrating disability, but still understanding um, disability is kind of so somehow outside of the space of the classroom, which I really, I do really see the classroom as a space of debility where we're constantly navigating debility and capacity, right? Mm -hmm. um, of various kinds and it's temporal and it's bodily and it's cyclical, you know, um, all of those things around temporality um, are really important. You know, debility also really helped me because I think it, along with destabilizing the binary, it also help me understand that there's no pure debility and there's no pure capacity, right? That we are as bodies um, kind of moving uh, in and out of these realms all the time. And so there's two things in relation to that movement. And one is that debility is kind of intrinsically, you know, you don't have, you don't have to argue for um, its relevance in terms of intersectionality, it's intrinsically <laughs> yeah. intersectional because debility capacity, you're always kind of in a relation of acknowledging your advantages, your privileges, and at the same time acknowledging where you don't have those privileges, where you don't have those advantages, where you are structurally set up biopolitically in devastating ways. Um, but then also in terms of assemblage, because um, I see debility and capacity kind of always in flux and always in motion and always, you know, moving. And I think that, you know, that leads to, you know, why I think it's so important to think about these things, not just in terms of political mobilization and kind of solidarity organizing um, and how we can kind of galvanize in relation to each other, regardless of our particular bodily situations in any particular moment, right, mm -hmm. um, is, you know, to think about societies of control, which work absolutely through not this self-other binarization, but work through 
modulation of bodily capacity and debility, right? The biopolitics as a capacity, you know, debility capacity machine. So, you know, the last the last question that started getting raised for me around all of this was, you know, we talk about in in relation to Marta Russell's work, you know, how disability becomes profitable. Mm-hmm. Um, it becomes profitable through the ADA because you can uh, incorporate disabled workers and pay them less or get kickbacks from the state or, you know, all the other, you know, you're you're reproducing the demands of capitalism um, through the ADA. And that's a kind of thing that Russell lays out. Um, but then there's also the profitability of the disabled body that cannot work. So you're, you know, your profit comes from being in a bed or the care economy that that is, you know, extracting and exploitative around that. But I also started thinking, well, debility is also extremely profitable for capitalism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do we think about that? Because that's not how we're thinking about disability. Um, or we are thinking about the profitability of disability, but I think we also have to think about um, what disability erases in relation to debility and how profit is made from that erasure, actually. Mm. I wonder if you could actually, if you're down, speak more on on that tension a little bit, because I think it's one of the most important things to understand here. There's a tension, obviously, that's important with the category of disability, right? That some people will never qualify as disabled circumstantially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Disability is an mm-hmm. identity that is denied officially to more than it is given. Um, and that's, mm-hmm. I think, a thing mm-hmm. that, you know, we often don't talk about so much of disability is about recognizing validity and thinking about things expansively. And we don't actually talk about how the state and the kind of national security apparatus often um, will control, minimize, and sort of optimize debility, keeping people out of that social role of the sick, of the disabled, out of that sort of official status, and that that in and of itself is one of the most important ways that the money model of disability that Russell theorized actually exists in society. It's like without the frame of disability is where it's actually most apparent. It's in the people who are denied that subjectivity or for whatever reason it would be unsafe for them to identify as disabled. And there are so many people who are in this position where, you know, they they experience debility, but they don't count as official or qualified certified disabled. I mean, someone told me in 2019, because I was invisibly disabled, I was not disabled enough to represent disabled people. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and that kind of idea of like, well, you know, sort of who is the the subject, right, of of, of even our, our theorizing of extraction and of healthcare and sort of of this way that the state tries to manage bodies and sort of, you know, create these ways of understanding both politically and socially what the role of debility is in society is by translating structural processes into individual groups of people with differential diagnoses who are sort of grouped under the umbrella of, you know, experiencing enough debility that can be documented on a medical chart to qualify for disability. And like a lot of times we talk about this in terms of like medicalization and the social model. 
And all of that's fine, but it really doesn't get into like the actual meat of what's going on and how bodies relate to the reproduction of capital and also to the kind of maintenance of the control part of a control society. And I think that's part of why it's really important to understand disability, capacity, disablement, debility. These are not like synonyms. Oftentimes in the kind of like NGO speak, you think of things as being like, oh, this is just a bunch of different words for something and some are more politically correct than others. And so often the language that we use around disability is in that register of like, well, what's the right term to use and what's the proper term to use, which really reflects this kind of negation and and rejection of so many aspects of debility that people live with who will never, ever experience being marked as, as officially disabled. Yeah, I think that's why it's so important to think of debility and disability as kind of codependent modality, you know, codependent frames and frames that are in relation as opposed to, you know, debility is not describing a body or a population or um, uh, it's more about, I think it's more helpful. um, And I I remember, you know, when I I was thinking about, okay, well, what is debility? I was reading, I was thinking about Spivak and and Mm. Guide Through Spivak and her idea of the subaltern. And, you know, she's, as with all of us and our contradictions and the things we say over the years that contradict other things we've said, (laughs) You know, she has been all over the map in terms of like what the subaltern is. But, I, you know, I think ultimately the most helpful expression of that from her was like it's a relationship. Um, it's a relationship to legibility. It's a relationship to interpolation. It's a relationship to identity and how it's policed. And so it's so important to continue to think about debility as not um, a description necessarily, but a relationship to um, disability. And, you know, so all of the things that you're describing, B, are already kind of part of that relationality, right? Um, The ADA itself already sets up uh, the good disabled from the bad disabled, right? And so in some ways, some ways, that's what we're talking about, right? Like, when I think about, you know, yes, unsafe to identify as disabled. Uh, When I think about, you know, what happens in, in Gaza, um, you know, there's very much so, you know, when we think about the shoot to cripple or shoot to maim policy, and we saw this in full force um, after the book came out. So that mm-hmm. was kind of, you know, heart wrenching for me because I was like, okay, this is playing out exactly and even worse than I ever could have thought it would it could play out in terms of the right to maim. But the targeting of over 7,000 uh, lower limbs of protesters in the great march of return, right, who um, remain in the space of the cripple um, or remain in the space of the debilitated unless they have access to certain kinds of resources um, and discourses that then, you know, allow them to produce themselves as an empowered, visible, disabled subject, right? Um, and so you can kind of see the distinction between the way those protesters were taken pity upon and then a whole humanitarian aid economy is generated around all of the pictures that came out in the you know mainstream press in in North America and then like something like the um the Gazan soccer team you know of the amputees right mm-hmm. um 
that, you know, or the BBC yeah. documentary on the Paralympics and the Paralympic Gazan uh, disabled athletes, like that kind of thing. So there's all there's always that kind of messy economy that, you know, for, for me, dis- identifying, I think we can see all the ways in which identifying and being able to uh, be declared disabled or being able to prove that one is disabled can operate as what are the ways in which there's a kind of beneficial economy around being able to identify as disabled, um, being able to be recognized as such. And um, at the same time, disability is used to pathologize, you know, raced and colonized bodies, right? And so there's, I think there's always that split economy going on that I was trying to attend to as well. Um, And that the problem with the split economy is also that there's just an aspirational push all the time. Yes, I want to be recognized. Yes, I need, uh, in order to get, you know, access to X resources, um, I want to be recognized. And of course, then then you don't even get into like, well, are there resources? Right. Um, you know, which is the the biggest question around a place like Gaza where the medical infrastructure is so decimated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what does it even take for a crippled body to become a disabled body, right? That's a question we should be asking. Yes. And and on the inverse, right? That like, you know, I think part of what's so important about about thinking through the debility disability nexus too is that there is that 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 debility allows prompts certain kinds of debility prompts recognition you know beyond individual and even human entirely human um, kinds of objects of study you know you you write in the fourth chapter about how crucial infrastructure you know is is being maimed in Gaza things like hospitals ambulances roads and food supply chains and that that creates again, this sort of endemic, um, you know, the structuring of, of everyday life uh, rather than the interruption of everyday life or the exception to everyday life. Um, mm-hmm. And in the CODA really, I think, dig into such, you know, and it's, and and are in part reporting, you know, conversations, you know, from fieldwork and talking to people, right. And, and a couple of, you know, key moments that really jumped out to me, you know, numerous interviewees, talking about um, articulating the tension between, you know, seeking, as you were just saying, seeking accommodation within the conditions of occupation versus or and understanding the occupation itself is debilitating, right? And Mm -hmm. when it comes to something Mm -hmm. like crossing a checkpoint, and so sort of this kind of shift that you introduced there, um, you know, rather than, this is a quote, rather than saying Palestinians with disabilities are twice disabled, this frame posits that everyone is debilitated to some degree, or in other words, mm-hmm. no one is able-bodied. And that's because mm-hmm. the production of debilitation is really central to colonial rule, right? That it's not, mm-hmm. again, it's not incidental. It's not um, a sort of byproduct of some other goal that the, actually the production of debilitation, which can include, you know, which does include, you know, shooting people, um, but, you know, also includes the destruction of medical care, the destruction of any sort of infrastructure, the destruction of food supply chains and roads, right? And that that ultimately, you know, that I think, I just, you know, I can't think of a more concrete example of both the riddle here, um, but at the same time, the real affordance of moving to think in this way, right? I mean, I, I, I keep, I keep having this sense, you know, both as I was as I was rereading the book, but as we're talking today too, of 
you know, it, I think it can be so challenging um, to expand the landscape of, it's a bad metaphor, to expand, you know, the every, <laughs> to, to expand the domain, right, of, of what it is we're trying to understand. And, yeah. and sometimes I think it's like, okay, you know, people have done all this work to introduce and elaborate and critically mobilize disability and adding in um, another concept, you know, like debility, right? Um, it, the point is not to to make it feel too heavy or unwieldy, and it's not some sort of nihilistic critique that is just meant to, you know, fuck up, um, fuck up everything and then walk away. But actually, there's this kind of <laughs> critical moment. I mean, I think that's great too. But you know, there's this moment, and I think it works really. It works really. It's my general tendency. <laughs> you know, I love it. But there's this way that in, over the course of the book, like you kind of arrive in the coda. Um, having moved through each of the really, you know, thoughtful and elaborate case studies and kind of arrive then on the ground with you um, doing this field work and hearing from folks and hearing from people who are confronting this conundrum, right, you know, as, 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 as the exhaustion and, and, and as the, you know, condition of life, right? And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, I, okay, that, that's why it's so helpful because, don't we want to be confronted with what is actually happening, which is not to say that yeah. you then get some sort of bird's eye view. That's not the point. Right. But, the, but there is a kind of um, dynamic, you know, I don't know. I just, I think things feel more, I don't want to say alive because it's another bad metaphor, but you get a sort <laughs> of sense of the, the liveness, right. And, or, you know, the deathly liveness or just sort of the moving parts are like really moving and, and you realize how much we've been asked um, you know, if we're just coming from a disability point of view, or if we're, you know, told only think about the global South on its own terms, or only yep. think about the United States, yep. you know, that you're just really being asked on purpose not to consider what is actually happening, mm -hmm. right? And, yeah. and that's, that I think yeah. is just such a, you know, it takes, I think it should take, you know, the length of a book to really come to that kind of um, moment. But for me, it was just such a kind of clarifying um, and yet sort of galvanizing. I don't know. There's just something I haven't quite been able to find the words for it, but, but that sort of moment of, um, okay, we're not in the before and after event of becoming disabled, but thinking about ongoing, you know, ongoing kind of quotidian, um, problems in which populations are like moving in and out and through and, and experiencing both debilitation and capacitation. And that that happens, you know, in a larger global context, um, you know, where, wherever we are sitting and reading this book, we're implicated in, but not in some sort of flat, undifferentiated way, but actually in a way that you can then start to dig into with, with much greater nuance. Um, well, that didn't arrive at a question. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that's just super, it's super helpful. And I, I appreciate you saying all of that because I think, um, because I think it's, it, I think you're right. I think it goes against what we'd like to see, mm. <laughs> you know, what we'd rather, what we'd rather see, which is, okay, here's something that I can kind of apprehend and I have a, I have an approach to, you know, um, and I, I think so much about, you know, the way that those images of the of the protesters that were shot in Gaza, you know, start circulating. And the reality is, is that there's a the focalization on the sniping and the shooting of the lower limbs and very few questions about how about the political situation that's come to this place and even fewer still questions about what happens to people after. 
this mm. disabling event, right? And so I think your sense of, um, well, here's actually what's happening uh, is what I, I really wanted to to get at um, on a larger scale. Yeah. Sure, every bi- sure, sure, every conce- every binary has a third. Right. There's always three people in bed, according to Lacan, you know, and so like, I'm like, all right, so what's the what's the third that's being repressed, you know, in this binary, right? I, it's a, it's a post-structuralist mode of analysis that I'm very constantly attuned to, you know, the kind of triangulation and sometimes even more kind of what else is being repressed in the name of this binary, right? What's mm-hmm. being hidden away in the name of this binary? Okay, so that's a conceptual move. But, you know, I also wanted to say something about what people are living through. And I think that that last, that coda, I think is what a lot of, uh, or some people in, you know, critical disability studies kind of objected to. And I'm like, here's actually what people are saying about their lives. You know, it's, it's not a question of is a disabled life a life worth living? Yes, it is. It's is is a is a life under colonialism a life worth living? Yes, it is. You know. Yeah. And that's the broad that's the broader question and stake here. So even when you have this idea that you know disability justice should make sense in a place like Palestine, well, not necessarily because there's an anti-imperial politics and struggle and resistance organizing that's happening on a much larger scale than what is, you know, what what are the, I guess I should just go back to Helen Mikosha, where she, she was just like, you know, everyone is concerned about this relationship between the medical and the social model, whereby we don't want to, quote unquote, return to the social model, right? But if you're looking at something called a political model or a geopolitical model, you don't have that bifurcation in part yeah. because what is pathologized is the colonial body writ large. It's not, you know, it's not only the disabled body that's pathologized and seen as inferior. It's the entire body politic, right? This is, of course, Fanon again. And so that's what's being resisted. And that's not to say that there there aren't um, you know, phobias and ableism and all sorts of other things going on in Palestine, but that the politics, the anchoring of solidarity and politics has to be more nuanced around what are these frames that we expect to be kind of translated and imported and taken up elsewhere, right? They don't always make sense. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think you give such a good example of that in the coda where you talk about, you know, if we sort of look at things through the kind of uh, narrow lens of medical model versus social model as being the two sort of dichotomies that were supposed to make some decision about which is the superior one to use to resist, right? That sort of puts us in a position of saying like, okay, our analysis about debility and Palestine and disability should center around um, removing the aspects of occupation, for example, that mm-hmm that mm-hmm. result in impairment, that result in um, harm, in a kind of permanent injury that gets jacketed in this kind of like, it's like a kind of mercy jacketing is what I wrote in the margins where you have like, uh, you know, deliberate maiming dressed up as a international mercy framework mm-hmm. and a kind of grace. Mm-hmm. 
um, that reflects positively on the occupying nation and the nations mm -hmm. inspired by the occupying nation and supported with weapons and funding and, you know, the sort of social sanctioning of the occupation. And what does it mean to say that we should remove the, the you know, quote unquote, disabling aspects of settler colonial occupation and not the occupation itself, right? Right, right. Which is, it's it's just such a crucial small detail that I think a lot of times is just completely collapsed in the kind of idea of just this being a mere issue of the medical and the social sort of butting heads in the realm of yep. the economic. And that's just, yep. that's only applicable in a very narrow sense. I think if you're like seeking, you know, certain types of analysis, it can be very productive, but it also you know, is not um, necessarily going to, as you're saying, um, be universally applicable. And I think so much of how we talk about disability is framed as, well, we may have all these human differences, but disability is the one thing we're all going to have in common one day. And we're all going to, you know, you know, the kind of pre-disabled framework that you're, you're very critical of um, in a, a really great way <laughs> in this book. And it's always one of those things where if I'm talking to someone or I'm being interviewed, you know, sometimes people say things about disability and I will let it slide because I don't want to like disrupt what they're saying or derail the conversation or it's a correction that I don't think is is something that I want to make right in that moment. But if the pre-disabled framework comes up, I'm always really quick to sort of shut that one down because this idea of permanent disability of disability being this kind of uh, endpoint that that really is exceptionalized and is also put in this hermetic kind of contextual box where we're 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 expected to talk about disability as almost being the same internationally, and it, it's just mm -hmm. it's it's not an an analysis that builds us toward um, any kind of solidarity for one, but also in terms of people's actual lived experience, if we want to think through how, you know, our, our suffering, our resilience, our experiences of sustained violence, um, repression, surveillance, um, criminalization, like how occupation, um, changes the way you experience your life, right? We we have to break open the ways that we're talking about our experience of even, you know, just symptoms or accessing care to to really be thinking about these broader ways of sort of undermining that universality that that is intended to collapse and that is intended to um, also really whitewash things. And again, sort of mercy jacket, all sorts of things, because as you put it in the coda, I think you say like permanent disability is a, is a, another word for a health condition that's not going to receive the fair or receive mm -hmm. treatment that it needs. Right. And mm -hmm. when we think about permanence and disability and the idea of a tr kind of transition to disability being marked by permanence, um, I mean, obviously this, uh, <laughs> relates to the kind of ideas that you engage with in in chapter one, um, talking about the kind of relations and tensions between transness and disability, both historically, legally, and sort of productively, um, looking at these kinds of ideas also and thinking about how permanence factors into the way that we value death more than maiming as a kind of event phenomena or, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. giving it this kind of ultimate meaning that it, that has almost 
implied like more weight to it, you know, than than the maiming aspect. And yet also a lot of times when we talk about disability, we talk about it as a living death. So it's like that exceptionalization of death, which perpetuates stability as leverage as a kind of control society phenomenon of population management, of sorting, of making bodies available for certain types of extraction that are incredibly profitable to very specific, narrow um, aspects of the global population. Like, this is a kind of, I think, really important, just, you know, it's like cutting something open and just pulling out all the pieces and trying to look at them for what they are, which really does, I think, add so much if you are someone who identifies as disabled to sort of look through these things and think about, okay, like, how is this idea of, permanence or finality or value within these different states um, sort of working within my own life. These are all really important things to think about. And I think one of the things that, you know, I really hope that folks who are who are newly experiencing debility, especially people who are experiencing it as a result of long COVID, um, feel that this maybe helps to fix some of the rhetorical things that they've maybe been struggling with around disability and the way that we talk about disability, because with COVID discussed as a quote unquote mass disabling event, right? This is a mm-hmm. kind of implication of a, a particular planned outcome. Um, and that in some ways talking about it that way is kind of talking about that process of disablement that is occurring as a result of not COVID itself, but the way that we've responded to COVID through organized abandonment as the kind of priority that's um, centralizing a lot of our responses to the pandemic, that this this really does, when we talk about COVID as a mass disabling event, it can often lend itself toward forcing that individualistic frame that again kind of hides the structural in these identity categories. Yeah, and I, I this is also well said and, and it makes me really happy to it just I really appreciate having a conversation about how complicated the argument is, the book, all the rest of it, because I think it's there's been some knee jerk uh, reactions that have been kind of disheartening. I think, you know, ironically, this this whole thing about um, disability being part of the diversity of the human of humankind. Right. And something that we should accept um, and something that we will all face at, at some point or another. Ironically, um, that's actually the discourse and the and the ideological kind of approach that makes it not possible for us to understand the diversity of human experience, right? That actually mm. shuts down what it means to be in mm. um, unintelligible liminal spaces that actually shuts down our understanding, as Jules was just saying, of what's actually happening in the occupation and of the kind of vast contradictions that we are all living with all the time, right? Um, You know, the NGO provides a wheelchair. The NGO is also denying um, its culpability in the occupation. Like, you know, it's like (laughs) those kinds of lived realities. And so that's what I was really trying trying to get at at the CODA, that there's so much more to say here than, you know, disability is something that we will all, if we haven't already, Kind of encounter um, in our lives, and I, I, I do think that you know the argument in health communism, the the one of the many arguments in health communism that's been so helpful for me is to to understand health as the handmaiden to capitalism, right? Um, 
And that that kind of galvanizes all of us to think about ourselves as laborers, um, as vulnerable, as, you know, relational uh, in terms of our well-being, as opposed to the individual body and will the individual body survive or not survive or, you know, is the individual body afflicted or injured or not, you know, all of these things that wind up becoming part of our own um, subjectivities and identities and thinking more collectively. And, you know, so for me, ultimately, thinking through debility is really about taking the gradation and the modulation of control societies and saying, no, we can do something else with that. Like we can think relationally and solidaristically around gradations of debilitation and not accept this binarism that's going to keep us from each other, you know? And so I think right. that's one of the most important things about, you know, control societies only can control insofar as we're not recognizing how they work, you know? Right. When when we recognize that part of the endless kind of fragmentation is part of the way that both the endless fragmentation and also then the kind of covering up of that endless fragmentation into these binaries, right? If we can address that prop that tension, um, then we have an actual you know, relationship to each other that's not contingent upon I am this and and I am not that, you know. Right. And and so the one, you know, the one thing that that can and has happened in, you know, some refugee camps in Palestine is a kind of collective relationality around debility and disability as a consequence of resisting the occupation, right, as a kind of political ontology, not something that becomes a kind of phenomenological experience of an individual body. And I think that that's really powerful, right? So, and what that does is also not just, you know, kind of have people living relationally in terms of multiple debilities, multiple disabilities, but also to understand that everyone is navigating what Celeste Langan calls mobility disability, whether one is um, has a kind of physical um, descriptive relation to mobility disability or not, right? Because mobility is one of the key components of keeping colonized people in place, right? Immobilizing mm -hmm. is like a prime logic of the occupation. And so when you start thinking more expansively about, well, what is mobility disability? You know, you have this resistance to the collective punishment of mobility that cuts across the disabled, non-disabled binary. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's so important also how you sort of position how a lot of these binaries almost rhetorically ultimately reinforce that that frame that we don't necessarily want to reinforce, that the idea of the binary of disabled and able-bodied in and of itself often is more reinforcing of the concept of able-bodiedness than it is yep. descriptive of what disability is, is for, how it's instrumentalized, what the experience of it is. And so much of our discussion around disability often is relegated to discussion of what makes disability different from able-bodiedness? Where does the boundary exist between able-bodiedness and disability? And I really like how you 
this is actually, I think, my favorite paragraph in the whole book. It's from the introduction, and you're sort of talking about this this pre-disabled framework here. Um, you write, the biopolitics of debilitation is not intended to advocate a facile democratization of disability, as if to rehash the familiar cant that tells us we will all be disabled if we live long enough. In fact, depending on where we live, what resources we have, what traumas we have endured, what color our skin is, what access we have to clean water, air, and decent food, what type of healthcare we have, what kind of work we do, we will not all be disabled. Some of us will simply not live long enough, embedded in a distribution of risk already factored into the calculus of debilitation, death's position. Others at risk because of seeming risky may encounter disability in ways that compound the debilitating effects of biopolitics. And it's, first of all, this is like beautifully written and always gives you like, gives me that like feeling of like, you know, when you read a paragraph you really love and it makes you feel angry and sad and like ready to write yeah. yourself. Um, and this I think connects a lot to Ruthie Gilmore's construction of racism as group differentiated vulnerability to premature death, right? This idea Absolutely. of yeah. this distribution of, of risk, this distribution of suffering is factored into the calculus of global capitalism. This is not disaster capitalism that is happening in Palestine, that is happening in the context of COVID, that is happening in the global South, that is happening in poor communities in the United States. This is this is factored into the structural components of our political economic sort of reality of the of the actual like liminal space we all live in, right? This is not some sort of moment uh, of, of sort of seeing like a aberration and an interruption and nor quote unquote normal programming, right? This is not a disaster. This is a necessary component as it's currently constructed for not only the distribution of risk and the distribution of resources, but the distribution of life chances and who will become and who will never become disabled. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you said so much there. I'm, I'm really glad that that, that that paragraph, you know, speaks to you. I, I, th I, you mentioned something about this kind of able-bodiedness and the kind of constantly trying to push for this distinction. And I think it's a, it's an incredibly punishing distinction. It's an incredibly punishing distinction, even for people who we could call able-bodied. Um, I think it's like such a punishing idea because it doesn't, again, it's one of those things where if we accept that disability is part of our diversity of humankind, you know, that's supposed to allow us to kind of be in the world in a better, more full way. But actually what it does is reify this category of able-bodiedness in an incredibly punishing way because so many of us feel like there's this kind of aspirational able-bodiedness that we are supposed to constantly maintain or aspire to or, you know, claim or uh, feel like we can live up to. And the reality yeah. is that many of us just can't and don't, you know, and but we have this fantasy that that's how everyone else is operating. And I think health communism for me really made me see that that's a fantasy. It's a fantasy we're all upholding with each other, too, you know, whether we identify as disabled or able-bodied or whatnot. And I've seen with friends, even with myself, how punishing it is to feel like 
well, I am supposed to be functioning as an able-bodied person because of this binary. And I just don't know how to do that. You know, I yeah. don't know if I, and this, this is again, kind of one of the, the things about health communism, where it's just kind of like, we're all feeding into the productivity machinery of capitalism, even through this, this understanding of able, especially through this understanding of able-bodiedness, but the binary uh, that this, you know, that this, that this idea rests upon, right? I mean, one thing, one thing that that was making me think and, and just sort of listening to to some of what both of you have just been saying, and I feel this way in the experience of reading health communism and also, you know, becoming a part of, yeah, becoming a part of, of this community too, of folks. It's like, all that self-punishment um, also as the predicate to our romance narratives about political change. Uh, and in some ways, I think, you know, when we have become so invested in the idea that injury is legible, injury is shared, injury is this flat, shareable thing that then tells us how to righteously demand transformation, you know, mm-hmm. maybe the maybe the inelegant you know, liberal version of that is identity politics, but there is a more, you know, sort of rhetorically left, um, you know, somewhat more sophisticated version of it that claims it's materially responsible that says, you know, well, we don't like the state. We, you know, we don't like the US. We don't like war machines. We don't like capitalism. But then imagines that, you know, there are these discrete groups of people you know, disabled people, queer people, trans people who have been harmed in in some way that is shared as if that gives us this kind of romantic solidarity. Um, mm-hmm. And this often becomes the slogan version of resistance that I, I just, you know, you know, it's like for so long for me, it's like I've always felt affectively like I can't go there. I can't buy into that. It doesn't feel right. I've always, you know, and, and, you know, just very, you know, your work, but also, you know, your, your training, since we're both in academia and you're one of my, one of my mentors, like the, the, the sort of coming to understanding race and empire's priority and all of that being so fundamental, but you were saying something that I think is so important that the thickness and the connectivity of those relation of all that relationality, right. That those collectivities Sure, they involve degrees of injury, but they're constantly shifting and modulating that that control society isn't stable enough for the romantic fantasy of this is how I was harmed and I'm doing an exact reverse, some Mm -hmm. sort of, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. um, righteous politics. But instead, but instead, I actually think and it's the same feeling I get you know, reading health communism, I feel great relief because I would much rather be embedded in a thick, live, collective set of relations that are just, you know, there's just so much there. There's so many, there's so many people, there's so many, you know, non-human actors. There's so, there's so much there. There's so much um, to be mobilized. There's so much that's actionable. But when you drop both that pressure um, to self-flagellate, to, you know, to to find through injury or self-punishment and the justification or the ethical virtue, for some sort of, um, you know, reverse politics. I just think it puts us in a place that is really, really relieving. And I also think that, you know, all three of us here are people who are trying to find ways, you know, to speak out into the world um, and to speak to people who we care about, who we're in solidarity and struggle with, um, without, you know, with uh, by by sort of rejecting the premise that we have to, 
um, subtract complexity from that and that we're not allowed to be really complicated about it or that the critique, you know, shouldn't take too long to make or that, you know, all of these sorts of pressures that I think, you know, everyone works under these days. I just, you know, I really appreciate um, this conversation today is having given us a chance, I think, to just sit with like, well, what would that look like really concretely, right? Here are a couple of examples and you have really done this work, you know, um, in, in bringing debility, you know, into relation with disability and, and then placing, you know, those in the context of, of imperialism and political economy. And I just, whatever it feels like it's not catharsis and that's such a relief to me <laughs> i can't mm-hmm. handle the pressure mm-hmm. to to feel catharsis anymore in the world it just like is too much um and i just really appreciate you know that complexity here there's a kind of honesty about it um but it does have a sort of i don't know i just to me it's like um my posture softening a little bit sitting back in a chair and feeling you know <laughs> feeling held up by other people and not just sort of straining you know in my own brain or in my own body to make sense of my place in the world or what what I would like it to be so you know partially I just wanted to to thank you for that uh, but I think it's this conversation to my mind and and really the way you know um that that the right to maim and health communism speak to each other i'll say as someone who you know has been delighted to read them both recently i mean it's that's really exciting to me i think i think it, it and i think that that you know is furnishing something um that doesn't just sort of speak to the moment but something that has become of course i think really important i mean just really immediate for those of us who are trying to figure out um, how to mobilize the ideas and training that we do have, uh, our life experiences and our and our collectivities to to offer something to everyone else who wants to join up with that without having to sacrifice those those critiques and without having to sacrifice the really 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 important building blocks that we need to that we need to you know be be accountable to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I really appreciate the way just weird that you put health as a thing that we're supposed to live up to because i think that that that's the ultimate way of thinking about it in order to understand how it's instrumentalized right if we think about well why does it matter that health is instrumentalized why does it matter that health is a fantasy Mm -hmm. you know what is it like who cares like what is the point of making that statement right like right to maim taught Artie and I like what that fantasy is for, right? It's, it's not, um, a construction of the state. Like health is not the state, right? Health is a kind of, um, a theory that's leveraged in all of these different ways against, um, all sorts of types of self-determination of, um, you know, saying I'm living a life of joy where I'm, you know, seeking and demanding my, my desires. Right. And this is something that, you know, in many ways, these kinds of desires and I I appreciate really, especially the way that you situate your work within a, not just a critique of imperialism, but a critique of the very idea of what terrorism is. Um, Mm Because this is a really important thing about health communism that I've been very surprised that people haven't picked up on as much, which is, you know, why is there, why are there two chapters on SPK? Why is that included and important has been a kind of question. And and some people have given us similar criticisms to things you've received in the past about right to maim, which is like, well, this is just bringing together a bunch of stuff that doesn't relate. And you're like, no, this is interdisciplinary analysis, like sit down and buckle up, bitch. But, mm-hmm. you know, like, <laughs> um, 
the kind of idea, right, about la- about desire for for the kind of lives that we want and the kind of world that we want, the way that that is is framed as terror, right, against the state and against the control state in particular, mm-hmm. our desires. And mm-hmm. this is speaking also, Jules, to the wonderful interview you and I did earlier this year for the new inquiry about your work, which is this kind of idea of imagining possibilities for each other as as really important as a kind of political praxis, not just imagining um, the ways that we're alike, but just wanting to realize that there are, you know, as you said, Jules, there are no limits on what we're allowed to want and that wanting mm-hmm. is what we deserve to do and that that in and of itself is an active process that is never final. And, and you know, it's like really if we think about what this fantasy of health that is used for and what it what it even matters that this is something that's instrumentalized towards the reproduction of capital, it's ultimately often in framing those kinds of desires as a type of terror against the state, against the nation, which is this kind of benevolent um, protector, right, who who has the kind of mercy to merely maim us and not to kill us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is also, you know, I think this is um, this is kind of foundational to to the right to maim kind of going forward. Um, and I'm working on a chapter called Injury as Future Violence. It's um, a piece that's kind of tracking you know, the the beginnings of COVID and the increasing realization that only some people were going to die, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and this was happening as the George Floyd protests were taking off. And then there was this conversation about crowd control weapons and rubber bullets being used to shoot journalists in the eyes, you know, which is, again, something that's constituted as um, a humane form of violence, right? Um, these these non-lethal weapons are, um, it's a huge industry. Uh, you can read someone like Paul Recher's work who is tracking the mm. development of this industry. And a lot of that discourse around non-lethality was, uh, you know, in earlier decades, kind of like, well, is this weapon non-lethal or not non-lethal? <laughs> <laughs> like, and, how, and if it's used properly, it's non-lethal. But if it's used improperly, would it still be non-lethal? You know, so all of these these technical, scientific and legal definitions around non-lethality, right? But, you know, when you move away from those technical conversations, what you're looking at is non-lethal weaponry as a way not to minimize violence, right? Um, But to expand its acceptance, um, and expand mm. its acceptance in humanitarian terms, right? Again, to go back to this, at least you weren't killed. Um, and so now the discussion's finally shifting to, uh, okay, so non-lethal weapons are not supposed to kill you, but they are disabling. They're massively disabling, and they can also eventually kill you. And the industry around non-lethal weaponry is just enormous at this point. It's just growing really, really. F- it's not the purview of a handful of states or the most powerful global mm-hmm. superpowers, et cetera. It's actually something that's being universalized in crowd control tactics, right? So Chile had a kind of 300 ocular 
trauma injuries in its uprisings in 2019. Kashmir has had like an epidemic, what is called mm-hmm. quote unquote epidemic of blindness mm-hmm. through the use of pellet guns. Um, you know, so there's uh, France had this whole, you know, these incidents around rubber bullets, you know, the United States, obviously. So I, you know, I think it's, it's important to keep thinking about the proliferation of the right to maim well beyond the global South, the way in which it's couched in humanitarian terms. So it has an alibi. So that makes it very insidious. And I think, you know, what's happening now is a kind of greater recognition of the ways in which non-lethal weaponry is, you know, claimed as a way of minimizing violence when it's actually an expansion of its Mm -hmm. use as well as a as a as its acceptance as well. Mm-hmm. And so we see a very we see a very concentrated example of that in in Palestine, in Gaza in particular, and also in Kashmir. But we're seeing these these discourses and the rash these rationales being used everywhere now, right? Um being globalized. So that's just something to think about in terms of the future of the right to name. Um, that it's actually the more democratic, uh, st- this is Paul Rocher's argument, but the more democratic mm. a state claims to be, the more it will enact this right to maim, right, mm. in the name of that liberal democratic frame. Absolutely. I just have to say, I have so deeply appreciated this conversation. This has been like an absolute dream to be able to talk to you both about this wonderful book that I feel like has taught me so much and that is frankly just so fucking underappreciated. Um, oh, I, thanks. I know. I feel that way too. <laughs> it's so true, though. I mean, this this is one of the most important books that I've ever read. Like, I put this one right up there on the, she- the shelf next to Golden Gulag and Ruthie's work. Wow. And, you know, it's it's so crucial. I mean, I, w- I was thinking back just now to the conversation I had with Dan Yacato specifically about public health in Palestine. And mm-hmm. Denya's work is fantastic. Highly recommend that episode. And a lot of yeah, her work yeah. is, is focusing on and inspired by her experience in studying pharmacy and understanding also sort of how these spatial conditions relate to broader understandings of debility and disability um, and this kind of mobility disability extension that um, you were talking about as well. And one of the things that Denya and I were talking about was, you know, you, you cannot invoke a right to health, you know, and this is something that so often is invoked. We have a right to health care. We have a right to equity, capital E. We have a right to public health and we need like funding for this. And that's kind of often the demand, right? And we cannot actually invoke a right to health without accounting for sustained, persistent, and as Denya says, overwhelming terror and violence as it mm-hmm. is differentially distributed according to different, you know, almost predetermined baked in understandings of how risk is going to be levied on the population. And I think that's why even now, not just for the fact that this is an an underappreciated, absolutely fantastic piece of analysis that you wrote, you know, during the context of COVID, as this continues, and as we continue to try and adapt our organizing and our theorizing and 
our scholarship and our conversations and our lived experiences to understanding what it means to do all of those things with COVID as also part of our lives and with the organized abandonment that characterizes the global COVID response. It's just, it's an even more crucial time, I think, to try and approach this text. If if someone hasn't read it before and you're listening to this, highly recommend. I mean, there are parts of this book that we have not even had a chance to touch on in this conversation. And it's not, you know, a super long book. And a lot of what you might read about this book is that it's unapproachable or aggressively too critical of the social model and all of this other bullshit that, you know, has nothing to do actually with any of the work that you did in Right to Mame and has everything to do with the kind of ways that these concepts like the social model are instrumentalized in the kind of justification of the continuation of the right to maim as a population management strategy that, you know, is not just something that's located elsewhere in an other or a a specific country, you know, that this is something that also primarily is crucial and central to the construction of the United States and how the U.S. operates. And I feel like a lot of those critiques are often trying to kind of distance things and remove the U.S. from this context and place it in a in a kind of exceptionalized position. And it's, you know, it's funny to see the, the critiques that the book makes kind of weaponized against it over the years. But I feel like as time has gone on, what is really borne out is that you know, the work that you're you're doing, Jasbir, is like, it's very important, but it also really pushes us and, and challenges readers in a way that some people don't like. And ultimately, I think that's a really, really good thing. But I'm biased, obviously, because all three of us are kind of in that boat. But I think it's <laughs> so, it's really, truly so important um, to be having these conversations as difficult as they are, as complex and overly nuanced as some people could say this could be. This, to me, is just kind of the most wonderful and affirming way to think through my own experience of debility, my own understanding of my disabled identity, and sort of what it even Mm -hmm. means to be doing the work that I'm doing. So I just wanted to say I really appreciate, uh, despite like the hate, (laughs) that you haven't let it stop you. Oh, well, I, I really appreciate all this. I don't, I don't know how much hate there is because I kind of check out. <laughs> but, um, I, but, you know, I, I know there was a kind of early like, oh, well, this is very negative about disability and, um, you know, disabled people have, have lives and they continue and they resist. And, you know, I was never, that was never my intention to kind of, uh, and certainly, certainly that's why there's a, there's a kind of towards the end, this conversation about how disabled Palestinians, some some disabled Palestinians are feeling about their lives and, and their thoughts about their lives. So there was, there was never an intention to dismiss all sorts of um, important things that come out of, you know, disabled people's lives and, you know, thinking and resistance and, and all of that stuff. But I think you hit on something really important. And I think that this goes back to the erasure of Helen Mikosha's work or, or, mm-hmm. you know, the kind of, the just, the kind of citational gestural citational stuff that happens with, with Mikosha's work. It's like overwhelming terror and violence, right? Mm-hmm. Overwhelming mm-hmm. terror mm-hmm. and violence. Like this is a day-to-day reality in so much of the world of overwhelming terror and violence. And the, 
capacity to delimit something that's an, a disabling event or um, a, or a, a quote unquote crisis that has a beginning and an end is the purview of very few in the world. And I think that's yeah. part of what happens here is um, that global, uh, that the kind of Southern disability studies scholars are not heard in that, you know, exhortation to be understood about what the kinds of priorities are when you are living you know, in a quote unquote conflict zone, right? Which is another way of not saying imperial, you know, colonial kind of um, uh, occupation, right? Um, yeah. But uh, so I, I do do this work with Disability Under Siege, which is an organization that focuses on Lebanon, um, Palestine, and Jordan, uh, and thinks about, you know, well, mm. what is disability and war? What is disability lived in war zones? What is disability lived in conflict zones? You know, um, how is it different from the way we would think about disability otherwise? And, you know, where is disability in the in in relation to all of the other struggles that, you know, living in those spaces might might entail? So there's often like a response to this literature of, well, we cannot, you know, we have to avoid pathologization. We cannot go back to the medical model. This is very negative about disability. Disabled people have offer valuable contributions, um, et cetera, et cetera. And that refusal, absolute refusal to understand that the, that, that kind of overwhelming terror and violence is a bio-necro imperial reality for much of the world right and it's part and we're implicated in that and so when disability studies is like well you know we have a whiteness problem and we need more analyses of race and disability and we need more disabled people of color writing in the field all of that is true but there's there's still such a dearth of work that's addressing U.S. empire and addressing mm -hmm. empire and imperialism and settler colonialism more broadly um, you know, and it's it's a, a particular kind of imperial relation because disability studies without without, a, you know, tackling this head on becomes a kind of handmaiden to U.S. empire, because on mm -hmm. one hand, it's creating all of this disability elsewhere um, and not only a north south thing and not only U.S. imperialism. Obviously, we have to pay attention to all sorts of local circumstances, the Palestinian authorities is refusing to, you know, give payments to people who are supposed to get disability, you know, insurance in Palestine, et cetera. We can point to all of that. Um, but you have that kind of production of disability. And then you have the, you know, the kind of field formation that's driven by the elaboration of northern disabled subject subjectivities, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so what is what is happening here, right? It's a kind of perpetuation of that imperial violence through the erasure mm. um, of uh, these voices, these, you know, these exhortations from from other scholars who are saying, no, you you need it's not it's not an inclusion that we're asking for. It's a shifting the models of what you're talking about to a different center, actually, which is 80% of the world's disabled people, right? Which is a mm -hmm. statistic that we kind of gets commonly thrown around. Um, mm -hmm. um, but anyway, I know I know we are, we've been talking a lot. Did you want to talk um, to kind of close off about writing through 
like writing, like writing and working on this. If you both have time, I don't want to push it. Artie has already given me the green light to give him a difficult editing task of essentially a longer <laughs> than usual episode. This is a conversation that that he and I have been waiting to facilitate on the show for years. This is one of the reasons why it's so wonderful to be collaborating with Jules is to be able to do something like this, you know? I just, I mean, I guess I was just thinking about this, what we put our bodies through when working, because I do think it's important. So maybe just a few, few, few minutes on that. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I think I can sort of set us up for that. Um, So one of the things maybe as a final topic that we could just quickly get into, and this is something that the three of us had sort of talked about in planning the episode and just personally in our work, um, one of the kind of themes that's gone almost unsaid in this interview is what the kind of embodied experience of doing this, this work can be like and the kinds of things that we put our bodies through when when doing this kind of labor. In the, the very last line of Right to Mame in the coda, you say that the book is sort of in service. It's a labor in service of a free Palestine. And when we work with these difficult and traumatic source materials, when we think about how our own pain and suffering and experiences of debility, disability, otherness, just any kind of legal categorization begins to shape and influence rhetoric and and arguments. One of the things that sort of became primary was was discussing sort of how experiences of pain and working through pain towards something can shape and deepen some of our analysis. And maybe this is a kind of like closing note that we could talk about for a second. Yeah, I mean, I will admit that I that the quest the question really or the the conversation about that i kind of surprised myself a little bit when we were talking about it what we put our bodies through when working because i i think that like my own history first first of all there's the the material and the and the topics like from you know all the stuff around the war on terror the abu ghraib torture documentation the kind of imperial violence you know and then it's similar with the right to name in terms of Palestine. And I've often longed for like a non, I don't know, non-traumatizing, non-traumatic. Yeah. Um, I've, of, I've often longed for something that wouldn't keep me up at night, you know, um, longed for, for uh, something to work on that just wouldn't, you know, um, kind of devastate me on the daily kind of thing. So there's just that there's, there's the kind of, you know, what, what gets absorbed or what, you know, happens um, in that relation that many of us have, you know, when working on the on these topics. But I was also just thinking about what happens to health during the tenure track. Um, I think that there's, there's just this normalization of, I mean, I remember the first medical leave I took from Rutgers was the year after 9-11. And of course, like many of us, you know, I was doing like triple quadruple duty uh, in terms of organizing and community and family and teach-ins and all the rest of it. And so, so it was, you know, kind of not surprising, but I remember someone saying to me, oh yeah, well, you know, you're one of color. Of course you're going on medical leave during your tenure track. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, I guess that's just the price you pay, you know? And so the way that that gets normalized is so in retrospect, so horrifying to me. 
And, you know, what tenure track does um, is it really disciplines oneself into accepting our own training into mm. overworking. You know, it's not like you get tenure and then you're like, I'm not going to work like that anymore. It's too late. <laughs> you can train that way. <laughs> It takes a lot. I mean, I'm still working on untraining myself from that, you know? Right. Um, you also got, I mean, I also had a sense of like, when I finally got tenure, I was like, I gave, I quote unquote, gave up my health in order to, mm. to do this work, you know? And I still feel like one of the things that's so under acknowledged about academic work is how debilitating it is. Yeah. And I think often it's because we, continue to play out this fantasy about this distinction between intellectual and physical labor, as if our labor is not in some ways, I mean, our, our labor is not not physical, right? Um, we are sitting at desks, we are, you know, um, staring at screens all the time, you know, not to mention any other array of kind of physical forms of laboring. You know, the idea, the whole now kind of greater understanding of brain fog is precisely about that, right? Like our labor is actually physical in a way that is manifested through something called brain fog when we cannot think. And so there is a kind of, for me, I was thinking about, you know, not just this normalization of scholars of color invariably um, getting sick uh, while they're working. And we have so many examples of that. But that there's a kind of missing piece um, in terms of building movements across workplaces. Mm -hmm. There's still this kind of intellectual versus physical, you know, binary around um, creating labor solidarity. So the discourse, mm. you know, in terms of unions is largely like, well, tenured faculty need to show up for adjuncts because they can <laughs> and they, they have job security. All those things are true. But it often still relies on this distinction between this labor of love that we get to do mm -hmm. that's intellectual um, and then, you know, our support of um, people who are doing, you know, kind of more, quote unquote, physical or manual labor. Um, and so there's still a kind of romanticizing of academic work as purely work of the mind or intellectual, as if there's not physical effects of the work that we do. We're seeing so much of that now in terms of like chronic pain issues and just all of the kind of manifestations of, of physical debilitation that actually come along with our work that are just buried. They're absolutely um, kind of buried in our conversations about academic work. Yeah. And I think one of the things that is so useful about right to meme if we're thinking about how it could like modify someone's understanding who's maybe already read health communism is that debility as you formulate it really offers us an out from a lot of these very standard and reductive ways of talking about labor exertion mm -hmm. disability and mm -hmm. worth and value and productivity because it's it's a kind of out from the surplus worker binary, right? To think mm -hmm. through mm -hmm. debility being a precondition of work in all capacities and to think mm -hmm. of work more expansively than simply waged labor, but as a more totalizing process of both mitigation, translation of, of your experience and, and survival from a, a sort of material standpoint, um, whether that's work that you're doing uh, to fulfill the administrative burdens that are foisted on you in order for you to 
access your certification as disabled. Like I was just officially recertified by the United States as disabled. And to think about how that that labor that I have to do in order to maintain certifications or that so Mm -hmm. many other people have to do Mm -hmm. in terms of administrative burdens, whether that's, Mm -hmm. you know, Georgia being like uh, ready to start rolling out Medicaid work requirements in the middle of a Mm -hmm. pandemic or Mm -hmm. the fact that when the pandemic emergency declaration ends, millions of people will be kicked off of Medicaid, Um, whether that's sort of the debate around who is a valid worker within the labor movement and who is not that has put Mm -hmm. service workers under the bus. This Mm -hmm. is why debility is really important because Mm -hmm. the worker surplus Mm -hmm. binary as it exists is a kind of rhetorical uh, trap, right? It it, Mm -hmm. it puts us in a, a landscape where we're pitted against each other against this kind of false design, like divide that you you allegedly transition across of at some discrete point, which is not fucking real. Like that's not how it actually happens for so many of us outside of the exceptionalized moment of a kind of accident or, um, you know, that that kind of way of understanding disability as instantaneous. Right. And that's why I think Right to Maim is actually one of the most important books about disability that has ever been written is because it actually pushes back on disability and opens it up towards debility as this really important analytical framework for understanding not just our relationship to you know ourselves but our relationship to the idea of work and what work mm-hmm. is for yeah 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 and anything less than i mean you know as you were as you were describing that that situation of the tenure track and and the uh, and the aftermath of being tenured, which I can certainly identify with in so many ways, I was thinking about you know just how how many of the grammars and habits of how we're coached to imagine something like a hierarchy, a labor hierarchy, or institutional privileges or material benefits, um, you know, really. In, in so many ways are a series of missed opportunities and deferrals and avoidances of the real meat, you know, of what of what we could be digging into and what something like solidarity as a principle looks like when it's enacted with an actual understanding. Yeah, for example, of how, you know, debility structures um you know, all experience, all, all, all kind of, you know, laboring conditions, but precisely unevenly. And it just seems mm-hmm. like what, what mm-hmm. a terrible missed opportunity for anyone in any position within that system to not, you know, you know, to even the kind of stoicism, I think that accrues to academics so often, or, or, or yeah. that we're invited yeah. or interpolated into where it's like, well, you know, two, you know, so a couple of things went really well in your life. So it's your job to be quiet and suffer and resolve anything <laughs> going on on your own time. Right. Especially if you're a woman of color. Um, but like, just what a missed opportunity, you know, like there's, there's really just so much right here, <laughs> right between us um, to work with and, and to, to put towards other ends. And I just, you know, that, that to me, again, this, that, that feeling of relief or, uh, that I, that I keep coming back to, I just think it's such a relief to not to, you know, to give up that kind of ultimately totally bullshit, you know, white dude fantasy that, you know, 
when it feels like when it feels like everything is on your shoulders, part of the fallacy of that is like it's not. That's not mm-hmm. how the world works. Everything is mm-hmm. not on your shoulders. You are mm-hmm. being made to experience your labor that way, in part to, you know, obfuscate, in fact, how the world is distributed and organized. And it's just, you know, I, I just continue to think like anytime I've been a part of, of union organizing or just other kinds of organizing, I just always I find I never get tired of that feeling of relief um, where I can just give up the that punishing, you know, stoic kind of structure and instead, um, you know, I, 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 I think about how, how things are shared unevenly, but precisely much more realistically and honestly. And I just think that that's a, oh my goodness. Yeah, we could well, have I like just a keep wanting to whole conversation about the stoicism thing. That's like a whole other podcast whole episode. Other episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also it's been disappointing to see the union kind of fall off of this, you know, mm-hmm. where they're kind of like, we still have to advocate for masks for people who are medically compromised. And I'm like, you, you like this wasn't where you were at a year ago. You understood this to be a collective project yeah. and you yeah. understood something about you know, so just to see that fall, but I mean, I, I think there's so many potential lessons from COVID that have so easily mm-hmm. fallen to the wayside. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's really distressing to see like union solidarity discourse kind of switch back into this normativity around health. You either have it or you don't, you know, yeah. and we'll protect those who don't in the name of you don't have it, you know, as yeah. opposed to we're all we're all managing this and the more you decide that you're the one who has it the more you don't actually get to live who you are when you don't have it you know mm-hmm. or or you don't get to live who you are as someone who just you know understands that it's not something to be had you know and so there's there's just like a real lack of curiosity on some level about what bodies are and what they go through you know when you keep reproducing that structure yeah. that discourse of separation out right no and it's it's such a crucial lesson that i feel like is being made so obvious in real time through the current situation with covid mm-hmm. and the shift from masking as a collective phenomenon mm-hmm. and understanding risk as um a kind of collective experience with covid to this very individualistic frame and you know one of the things that i think Uh, you write about in chapter two even is that debility while it might sort of complicate certain things to think about this this way this also offers that kind of shift toward understanding a collective experience around disability that I think a lot of people who have been working with disability for a long time and thinking about disability have been really going for you know for decades the Mm -hmm. kind of goal around disability as a concept has been to try and frame it as a collective experience in some Mm -hmm. kind. Mm -hmm. And um, you write that one of the most important sort of goals of a lot of disability scholars has been to de-individualize disability and to, um, you know, sort of put it in this context, but that by doing that through asserting that disability itself, which, as we've been saying throughout this whole conversation, is a very narrow um, technical uh, identity in a lot of ways that has a lot of boundaries, borders, constraints, and qualifications and sort of systems of official control that really create the disabled subject 
in a very narrow series of parameters that it what debility can do as a concept of thinking about workplace risk as you write about is is really important because it actually pushes us towards that collective experience that many disability scholars are going for which is ironic that so many were kind of shitty about receiving this book and the lessons that it had to teach us and you write it shifts us from positing disability as a collective experience of aging of inevitable frailty and illness to nuancing that observation through attention to populations and their differential and uneven precarity. Rethinking disability through the precarity of populations not only acknowledges that there is more disability within disenfranchised and precarious populations, it also insists that debilitation is a tactical practice deployed in order to create and precaritize populations and maintain them as such. And I think that's really important. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this book is fire. I mean, bottom line. No, I've so internalized the disgruntlement that I just haven't, I haven't, I, this has just been such a, like so meaningful to me to revisit this stuff. I really appreciate it. Cause I really had, I really was just like, all right, I wrote one first good book and the second book. Okay. Whatever. (laughs) You know, like it didn't go over so well. So I really, I just appreciate the attention and the love, really, truly. Well, this this fa- fantastic piece of work really deserves um, the love mm-hmm. and much more love than it has gotten. I mean, mm-hmm. if we want a way out of this kind of zero-sum austerity yeah. mindset that yeah. characterizes yeah. a lot of our organizing right now and also a lot of the critique of our organizing and the critiques of the critiques of our organizing and the ways that we are all experiencing extractive abandonment, which I found this really hilarious note that I had written in too light of pencil to be able to read where in the margin of this next to that quote where I wrote extractive abandonment is actually the collective experience that many mistake for disability, which I was like, shit, Mm -hmm. I forgot to include that in the book. (laughs) But this is, this is, you know, debility and the right to maim and more importantly, what any of all of this is for, most importantly, um, thinking through those things is our way out of that cyclical discourse, which only silos us and divides us and undermines any kind of attempt to de-individualize a lot of the things that we are fighting that don't live in the individual, but live in the structural. Yeah, this has also just been super helpful for me to 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 listen to both of you and to kind of think through and talk through this because of course like a very early defense of mine was well I'm not you know I'm not against disability identity or I understand the politics you know politics that are routed through disability identity like I don't want to malign that I'm not trying to take it away from you or anything but I think as as I mean I really think as COVID has evolved I'm like wait a second, this is not going to (laughs) work. You know, like I can see now more clearly, you know, what I couldn't get to in the right to name, which was like, there's, there is a, there is no collectivity that's going to happen if we continue this way, you know? Um, Well, I like to think that Jules is right, that we've, we've come into a vibe and that now is a moment for these types of analyses. (laughs) Yeah, no, you, death panel is, is incredible. So, I mean, yeah. I, I feel like, yeah, it's a movement. 
So, well, couldn't be incredible without your work. And I'm not I'm being very serious. Uh, I, I really have appreciated this conversation so much. This has been mm-hmm. absolutely wonderful. I encourage people who have listened to go ahead and read Right to Mame. Also, Jasbir's first book is really great as well. And um, in many ways, the kind of conversation around pain too that and, and working yeah. through pain is so present in that work, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which, you know, I know you don't do podcasts, but we might have to peer pressure you into doing another one, maybe in a couple years, revisiting that book. Uh, who knows? And patrons, we all would like to thank you so much for the support of the show. We couldn't have done any of this without you, really seriously. And I hope you appreciated uh, this sort of very extended discussion that I'm sure a lot of you are going to be thrilled to see in your feeds And we will catch you later in the week in the main feed. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore or request it at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. And Jasbir Poir is author of the pathbreaking books, Terrorist Assemblages, Homo Nationalism in Queer Times, and the one that we've been discussing today, The Right to Name, Debility, Capacity, and Disability. Jasbir, thank you so much for joining us. And as always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever, stay alive another week. Sometimes it can feel funny to say Medicare for all now after a conversation like this because it's so locked into like a nationalist project, but um, parts for the whole, right? Yes, totally. Yeah. totally. Yes. Mm, yep. Strategic essentialism at the same time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>